So most people are story hoarders, and I know why. Uh, especially when it comes to the specific memories of Ouch and Pain and Sting and Woe. So most people keep those stories in their head, specific events. And a story kept in the head is extremely disorganized compared to once it's written out. Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. I'm Jackie Goddard and I work with entrepreneurs, leaders and speakers to make them excited about sharing their thoughts and ideas with an audience. With this podcast, I have the privilege of speaking with successful creatives, business owners and thought leaders about the importance of creativity for work and life. And I get to hear about their unique journeys too. I've been inspired, educated and enthused by every person I've interviewed. And today's guest is no exception. Enjoy. Well, hello and welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast with me, Jackie Goddard, and my guest today, and I'm really, really chuffed to have you here, is Mark England. Thanks for being here, Mark. Thank you for having me, Jackie. And Mark is the co-founder and head coach at Enlifted.me, and you've been coaching for about 16 years, Mark. So tell us a little bit about the coaching and how, how that came about and what it is that you actually coach in. Well, I once upon a time, I wanted to be a professional MMA fighter. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I wrestled in high school, and, and uh, which was a good base to get into you know, jujitsu. And if you know what that is, everybody in, in college, and you know, this is this is early days on the scene. Uh, this is late 90s, and had a handful of amateur MMA fights, and, and, uh, I decided to make a bold move, which is to move over to Thailand. I was going to, the plan was to stay there for a year, polish up my Thai boxing skills, and then come back and go pro. And that's exactly what didn't happen. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Curveballs. Um, uh, six months in, I'm having my second knee surgery. And the doctor told me in, um, I remember it. It's, you know, it's funny how you remember those those moments so clearly. He, he said, your career as a fighter is over. You could become a very good swimmer. <laughs> and that's exactly like at 27 years old, not really what 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 I had in mind. So uh, I darkness descended. We'll keep it short. Darkness descended. And I'm I didn't laugh for an entire year. Pretty sure I didn't smile all that much either. And what I, you know, in hindsight, what I did is use that because it was a big deal. I mean, people really didn't move to uh, this. This is a big deal in the, in my local fight community, a big deal in my family. I only had my, my passport for two years and I'm moving to Thailand for a year. I ended up living there for 10 years, which is still kind of weird to say, uh, and true anyway. So I, and this is the biggest move I'd made, you know, both, you know, physically and psychologically and emotionally, uh, that I'd, I'd ever done the biggest thing I'd ever done. And I flopped and I used that situation, that experience as the final piece of evidence in a damning case I was secretly and silently making against myself the whole time that I wasn't good enough because I had that fear, which is a very common fear. 
You can look it up. It's called a telephobia, the fear of not being good enough. Uh, and, and yeah, so now I've got the final confirmation that there really is something wrong with me and I was doomed to fail and, and, and I'm not good enough. And, um, and I entrenched a deep, heavy, inflamed victim mentality about the whole thing. I had everybody to blame too. I had, you know, my genetics to blame, you know, if I was a better athlete, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had the guy to blame, you know, we were just warming up. You shouldn't have been kicking so hard. Um, and I had, I had everyone to blame except myself. Uh, and, and thank goodness I got tired of that. And after about a year of being that way, I looked down that road and said, uh, Mark, are you going to be complaining about this when you're 55? I was 26, 26, 27. And, and I looked at that version of me and for all the right reasons that, that, that terrified me. I was like, if you do that, cause you could, if you do that, then you really are a loser. And so I said, I'll take anything but that. And I was a teacher at the time. I was teaching at an international school in Bangkok and lucky me uh our vice principal came back from doing a three-day liver cleanse down at this place called the spa on Koh Samui which is an island in the Gulf of Thailand they were running three-day seven-day cleanses which is a really good gig you go down there and you pay them to not eat and they give you some broth <laughs> and a coconut and, a, and you get a card to the steam room and people come out of there like better because it changes things up so I go do that and I actually feel better on the other end of that thing. And the place was really cool too, Jackie. It was, it was, it was hopping at the time. There was people from all over the place and a lot of, a lot of socializing and just interesting conversations, as you can imagine. Yeah. And so I kept going back and my third trip down there. So this is, this is, we're, we're still on the conversation of how did I get into this? Uh, a, a, a gentleman um, from uh, Totnes in, in Bath County uh, by the name of Barry Musgrave. I didn't know him at the time. I didn't know he was going to be such an influence in my life. He was giving a talk on emotional detoxification in one night in 2003. And me and all my glorious wisdom, I laughed at the title. I was like, emotional detoxification. And I went and guess what he talked about? He talked about words. He talked about story. He talked about stress response. He talked about breathing. And then he asked, is there anybody in the audience who's, who's hung up on a story? Who's, who's, who's upset about something? And this woman shot her hand right up and she told the story of a, it was a bad breakup, bad public humiliating breakup. Uh, that happened four years ago. She's still angry about it and hasn't gotten in a relationship since. And uh, he had her tell that story three times. First time through, he didn't touch any anything in the story. He just let her go. And at the, during and at the end, she's angry and in tears. Okay, great. Tell me that same story again, which she did. And then he, he played with a couple of the words, which loosened it up. 
and now she's sad, no tears. And third time through, third time's the charm, because he knew what he was doing. He isolated the one sentence, the Lord of the Rings sentence that held the whole thing together. And it was, he did that to me. And he stopped her when she hit it. And he had her repeat it again. He did that to me. And he asked everybody, did you hear what she just said? Everybody goes, yes. And he said, say that sentence one more time, except take out that last word and put in himself. And it was such a radical departure from the story that she was telling herself about what happened, her interpretation of it, that it, she, it went up at the end. It's called up talk. It goes up at the end. He, he, he did that to, to himself? Question. It's yeah. why she turned it into a question. And then, and then you see you you see it catch, and you see the air come off the top. He did, he did do that to himself. And then she goes in a completely different direction with the thing, talking about how the friends that he lost, um, uh, what happened to him, and then finally the, the the she just walked herself right out of the story, and she ended up with you know what it wasn't going to work out anyway. That guy was actually pretty weird. <laughs> And I saw that and I said, I said, I just looked, I I pointed out, I was like that, that right there. I said, that's not my story, but that's my story. And, uh, I got up from that workshop and went straight to the internet cafe, printed out an 85 page manual on how to do this work on myself, uh, and studied this stuff for three years and then went back to that same spot. January 17th, 2007. So I turned six, I turned 16 years old. I know it's an impressive beard for a 16 year old, 16 (laughs) years old, professionally speaking on the 17th of this month, because in January 17th, 2007, I went back to that same spot. because I kept going back, like I said, and um, befriended a lot of the, the practitioners and um, created a, an opportunity for myself. And, and I put my poster up on the board with all these other practitioners posters. And that was the, fr- that was the day I went pro. Wow. And I've been doing it. I've been doing it 16 years, somewhere between full time and overtime the whole time. Um, we've, we created uh, two different brands, um, language centric focused brands dedicated to dismantling the victim mentality uh i've done just just go ahead yep. yeah yeah i just i wanted to sort of pick up on some of you know what's in that incredible story and i and i i know i mean you've been coaching on the victim mentality all these years now and that absolutely comes from that personal experience that you had which is a is a, a similar thing to myself uh, which I was telling you before we started recording, is that in my 20s, I had several miscarriages and then I had breast cancer and then I carried on having a, a couple more miscarriages and I literally did the same thing. I just went into victim mentality. I just looked at myself and said, well, what a failure am I? You know, everybody else is doing so much better. I can't, I can't do what's, you know, a basic thing you know for for a woman to do give birth it was just you know I, I I lived in that head space for about eight years before I actually 
I didn't go on a on a fabulous retreat in in Thailand, which sounds lovely. I but I did go and see a therapist, and I I talked it through, and at that point realized that I wasn't responsible for anybody else's happiness. I was only responsible for my own state of mind and I wasn't the victim you know I and nobody else was to blame I had to take responsibility for myself and that again as you say and I hadn't thought of it in those terms but that maybe then was the point that I started to be a coach myself Mm. and although I was teaching acting I wasn't coaching in that at that time a lot of what I was doing it was around coaching it was around supporting people it was around taking people from that space, talking to them about their stories, using their stories as part of um, uh, the acting improvisation kind of stuff that we that we were doing in my classes. And that's kind of led me to where I am now. So I absolutely relate to, to what it is that you're what it is that you're saying. So tell me a little bit then about how you how you help people get out of that that victim mentality. What is it? What is it? Where can you start if you are wrapped up in that and you don't have you don't have a mentor or or somebody to kind of take you through that? Very simple. Uh, In my personal and professional opinion, the number one place to start is to pick up the pen and write it down. So most uh, and whether that is and and there's there's a and there's an important distinction to make. Um, There's a big difference between writing a story out uh, and allowing yourself to continue believing that same story. And then, and then, and then there's a very, there's a very big difference between that and writing out the story. So you can think about your thinking. Our man, Alan Watts, he said, when you learn to think about your thinking, you become alive in a new way. And most people due to a lack of education, I have a degree in education, so I can take a a poop on it. Uh, Most people are not, they did not learn to think about their thinking in school. Most people do not have any courses, classes, or even conversations in school about how to get their language working for them. Most people's language is working against them, unbeknownst to them. Most people do not have any classes, courses, or conversations in school uh, about what the victim mentality is by definition and the language patterns that force people into those victim centricities. And it, it is, it's an easy conversation to have. And when you have a pen and a piece of paper, Things get a lot easier. So most people are story hoarders, and I know why, uh, especially when it comes to the specific memories of ouch and pain and sting and woe. So most people keep those stories in their head, specific events, and a story kept in the head is extremely disorganized compared to once it's written out, tied in written conversations. A story kept in the head is seemingly infinite. Where does it start? Where does it stop? There's the worst part again. Ouchie. Story kept in the head. The story is still in me, and I'm still in the story. It's personal. It's subjective. It's, it feels, it can feel exactly, and usually does, it can feel exactly the same even after all these years because time does not apply to the emotional body. So what we do, and I'll tell you more about, tell you all more about that for context um simply for the the to answer a potential question in your audience why should i listen to this guy okay 
what we do, help people do, is get those stories written out on paper. And now once a story is written out on paper, now it's finite. There's the first word, there's the last word, and you want to err on the side of more detail than less and write it out conversationally. Okay, and let's let's get this on the table too. Did you need a PhD to create the story in the first place? That answer is no. And do you need a PhD to change some of that story or a lot of that story or all of that story? My personal and professional opinion is no. There's a time and a place to talk to, you know, credentialed professionals, of course. And guess what? You can do a lot of great work for free with a pen and a piece of paper, turns out. And and once the story is written down on paper, you can start looking for key words, key words that are going to force the rest of the sentence and the rest of the story. Here's what I'm talking about. And I'll back into this if it's okay. Is it, is it okay if I go on a five-minute Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay, folks. So I'm going to do this twice. I'm going to recite. I'm going to take a, just a pinch out of the middle. And I'm going to recite the definition of the victim mentality. Most people have never heard the definition of the victim mentality. They, they might have heard someone say, oh, that person, look at the words. That person is playing, playing, acting, playing the victim. Or they've got a victim mindset. There's, there's a lot more to that conversation. And it, there's, there's a lot more value to be had in that conversation, a lot more context to be had. So if you've got a pen and a piece of paper, I invite you to write this definition down. Like I said, most people have never heard the definition and, and further still, most people have never written it down. So here it is verbatim. The victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person tends to regard himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence, period. The victim mentality depends on a habitual thought process and attributions. That was a slow delivery. I'm going to speed it up the second time and give some context. The victim mentality is an acquired personality trait where a person tends, it's a tendency. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. They tend to regard themselves, himself or herself as the victim of the negative actions of others, even in the absence of clear evidence. Yes, we can make some things up from time to time. And most of the time we do. Second sentence, the victim mentality depends, underline that word. It depends. It has to have a habitual thought process. Habitual accurately implies duration and addiction. So let's, let's, let's ask a question. So if there's a thought process also known as words that the victim mentality has to have, it depends on those things. What are the words? And that is, uh, that's been the center point of our business or our businesses, our two brands since we've been doing this and even before that. So I, I partnered up for the first eight years of my professional life. I, I, I did, I had my solo practice. Then I partnered up with my business partner eight years ago and we created Procabulary, 
which is a brand. It was, uh, it, it started the, the thing. Um, we created a course for the general audience about how uh, the, the victim mentality and victim language, which we call conflict language, shows up at home, at work, in your head. And lo and behold, it hit. We went on a couple of podcasts and that thing took off. And it, it unbeknownst to us at the time, it, it got into the fitness industry, interestingly enough, Jackie, uh, uh, and especially in CrossFit. We did one podcast, the number one podcast in CrossFit we did in 2017, early 2017. And when that show dropped, everything changed. And it, uh, like I said, unbeknownst to us, kicked off our certification business. So we've been teaching this style of remediation of the victim mentality for three and a half years. Two nights ago, we graduated our 300th level one coach. So I'm the head coach of that. I deliver all the trainings and the teachings for level one, two, and three and any specialty courses that we run. And those are small batch. It's 10 people per certification. Um, and they're, they're 10 week, nine weeks, 10 weeks long, depending on level one or level two. So it's, we have, we have consistent, sustained conversation about the definition of the victim mentality and then the language patterns that script it. So in our, our articulation of this phenomenon, this occurrence, there's three language types that uh, script and maintain roughly 85% of the victim mentality. So this, now we're into what, what is it? The victim Mm. mentality. There's, there's a thing there, folks, there's a game to play. Okay. There's, there's a reason that um, you can. uh, So, you know, great reasons to work with Jackie that you're, you want to speak well, what a great thing to learn to do. And then part of you is like, Oh, don't do that. They'll laugh at you. You're not good enough. You don't deserve to be what all, um, you know, there's so many other better speakers out there. Who do you think you are? All that stuff is coming from somewhere. Okay. And uh, part of what is <laughs> part of what that is, is victim centric stories. Okay. And, and then the language patterns that script them. So the three pillars of the victim mentality or conflict language, as we call it, oh, an, an important note. We had to we had to throw our throw our first uh, online course in the trash because we were calling it victim mentality language and we got that th- we shot it we shot the course sat down this is two dudes bootstrapping a business in in 2014 2015 and we looked at each other like dude we got to do that over again which is no big it was that that's a big deal to do uh, because starting the conversation with the victim mentality it can be too strong of a place to start because people say, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a victim. <laughs> I'm not, I'm no victim. And, and, and then you present this conversation with, instead of victim mentality, language, conflict language, I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I got a little conflict language. I got a little conflict going on at work and who you should see my marriage. And so, and then you get into the story, you get them writing down the stories and the words are there. I promise you they'll be there just like that that woman, he did that to me. That's called mm. a projection. That's called a projection. He did that to me. What does that mean? That means that he's in the picture, going to be in there, and she's in the picture, going to be in there, and two plus two equals four for me, Einstein, all of us, and her, 
And so what that does is it forces her to create the victim villain dynamic, hence the stress response, hence the rep repetitive negative feelings, hence the and if someone stays in that uh, and we're about to get to the language patterns, I, just, I, I go on rants and tangents professionally and I come back to them. Uh, if someone stays in that in, in a flavor of negativity, let's talk about indecision. If someone uses soft talk a lot, which is one of the three pillars of, of, of conflict language that script the victim mentality by definition, and they practice, uh, they use a lot of, in, they're, they're, indecis they're indecisive a lot. They're, 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 they eventually, they identify themselves as an indecisive person. And oddly enough, when we identify ourselves as something, we get better at the thing faster and that could be good that could be bad you know uh, uh i'm an indecisive person guess what you're gonna get better at being indecisive or um i i've got i'm i'm consistent guess what you're gonna get better at being consistent um everybody's out to get me guess what you're gonna get better at seeing scenarios where you think people are out to get you you're gonna get better at that you can get better at anything so the three pillars of of conflict language projections, negations, soft talk. I can go into those things, Jackie, or we can go in another direction. What, but the, I mean, I, you like? I mean, I know I, that I just put a lot on the table right there. I'm, I'm, aware. <laughs> I'm aware. Yeah. I, I would like to maybe just unpick a little bit around the words because words are so, I mean, where does it, where does it come from? Do you think this, this, because we all have it to a certain extent, I think, yeah. you know, nobody, nobody gets to sort of into their thirties without having been through some kind of uh, trauma, I suppose. I mean, and that can be anything. And I, I understand that from when I went through it myself, that everybody would say to me, Oh no, you, Paul, you, you've been through this, you've done that. Uh, but everybody has their own version of that. So it's very difficult for people to get into sort of adulthood without actually coming out unscathed. So where does that, where does that language start? What, and what, what is it that, I mean, is it, I mean, we know it as sort of um, imposter syndrome maybe as well. So is that, is that part of the same thing or are they, are they two different things? Well, we've, we've got a glitch in our language there are, like I said, and this is an education issue. This is not an intelligence issue by any stretch of the imagination or a, a deserving, deservance issue. Um, most people's education, Jackie, comes down to spelling, grammar, and definitions. Okay. There's a whole other part of the conversation to be had. And that part of the conversation is... Uh, to learn how our words, our language, and when I say language, everybody, I mean internal dialogue and external dialogue, what we think, what we say, what we write, those three things, how our language influences us for better and for worse. So our language influences four key aspects of our experience of ourself relentlessly and simultaneously. And those four aspects are our imagination, our language, our words. They, they, they interact with our imagination and create pictures and mental movies. Imagination, feelings and emotions. Our language influences our posture. 
What do you mean by posture? Talk yourself into a bad mood and stay there and see what happens. Then talk yourself into a good mood because that's the only way you ever get into a good mood is by talking yourself into it. And then watch what happens to your posture. It's like it changes and you're like, well, things are looking up. See the words? And then our breathing. Our language influences our breathing for better and for worse. And when we learn, and the, the ancients knew this. This is nothing new, folks. Abracadabra. When I say abracadabra, let me guess. People listening to this show, the first thing you think about is magic. Great. And there's more to it than that. Abracadabra, and you can look this up. Abracadabra is Aramaic which is one of the languages that Jesus spoke. It's the language the first, the, the original Old Testament was written in. And abracadabra, which is Aramaic, translates to with my word I create or with my word I influence. The metaphysicians, the teachers of the day, they would triangulate it and wear it around their neck to remind them of the power and the mechanism of the spoken word. Because they knew if they got that thing if that was working against them, stuff's going to be a lot harder than it has to be. And if they got it working for them, then it's a lot easier to stay focused on what's important, keep the drama down, keep our energy up. Uh, that's one part of my answer. And then where does this come from? Language? That's a great question. It's an inheritance. We inherit this way of telling stories. It's as... It's as in, baked into us as walking. So baby, when babies are born, they're not, they don't have to start thinking to start walking. As soon as they, they're, they're learning to walk before they know what they're doing. Head, their head's bobbing around and they're rolling around and they're trying to, to get up and stand up and they fall over. And they don't know what the end result is going to be, which is going to be walking. <laughs> Same thing with the noises. Babies are born, and as soon as they can start playing the game, they're like, okay, i got to connect the dots between what these noises are with these big people around me that are responsible for <laughs> my existence and further existence. Uh, I, 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 it, we just we start learning language immediately. And most people get into let's, – let's go with everybody. We start using language before we know what we're doing. And we start telling ourselves stories before we know what a story is. And um, a lot of times we tie ourselves up in, in some knots in our mind and in our, our hearts. Um, and glory be to the people that figure out that they can change the story. Because if not, that story stays the same. If someone keeps telling themselves the same story with the same words – at the same pace, with the same inflection, with the same breathing, they're getting the same thing every time. And that, that can go on for decades. Usually yeah. does. Then how, how do you, as a parent, I, you know, I, I would like to think I, I can influence my daughter in a, in a good way. If, you are, if you're a new parent, how do you break that cycle of that, of that language yep. so, that, so that people understand that? that there is a choice to be had. Sure. 
We're not ending here, just taking a quick break to remind you that you are listening to Power to Speak, the podcast. And we'll be right back after we hear from our friend, fellow podcaster and teller of tantalising tales from the Storytelling with Puck podcast, Stefano Capacchione. The story I'll, I'll read for you. The once with three little girls. This is a dream that I think really shows how we view transformation. Dreams, emotions, empathy, connection, stories. Storytelling with Puck. Find your next tantalizing tale on your favorite podcast platform or at puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with Puck podcast. Two things come to mind, um, unrelated in one sense to the words. First things first, slow down your rate of speech. Slow down your rate of speech when you're talking to your children. And what that will do is it'll give you more time and space to be more conscious and selective with your word choice. A lot of times, I mean, a lot, it's a very frequent thing to hear parents say, uh, I hate repeating myself. I bet you do. And most of the time when people say that, they're, it's because they're repeating themselves in negation, which again is one of the three pillars of conflict language, projections, negations, and soft talk. Negations, what are they? Uh, don't talk back to me. You can't leave until you finish your food. Uh, uh, stop making a mess. Um, you haven't done your chores. And so uh, don't fall down and hurt your knee. Don't get your clothes dirty. What that forces me to do is make pictures, little mental movies, remember that, of the thing that I don't want to happen. And I upset myself over here on this side of the street. And then when I tell little Johnny or little whoever, um, don't talk back to me, they make a picture of talking back to me. And so we get stuck in this weird dynamic. And oh, and by the way, uh, those sentences. So before learning about the words, slow down your rate of speech, which will also positively influence my second piece of advice is to breathe well around your children as in low and slow, get your breathe slow and smooth around your children and everybody will downregulate. Everybody will relax to a degree. It's called entrainment. Look it up. And, um, and, and, and your children, children model parents' behavior both consciously and unconsciously. It's very rare for a child to grow up in a high-stress, high-anxiety environment, also known as everybody walking around with their breath trapped in their chest upset about something. They come out and they're cool, calm, and collected. No, we inherit our parents' breathing patterns. And so great advice. And this this will work with your children. This will work. Uh, you got to wait a little while for the holidays or maybe next time you get together with your family. And, and there's some people there that <laughs> uh, uh, trigger trigger you. Um, go, go, to, go to a family event and start breathing well. As in, like I said, low and slow. Most people are breathing high and tight. High and tight creates the fight. Low and slow creates the flow. And and yeah, breathe well around your kids. Slow down your rate of speech by about 10%. That's plenty. 
and for you to start connecting dots with your words about which ones to use less of, which ones to use more of, um, and then and then take out soft bug, which we can get to later. Yeah, well, no, tell me about soft talk because I mean I am interested in what what is what is then the definition of uh, of soft talk. Soft talk, softening words when people use. Um, the definition of soft talk is uh, uh, a set of words used to create ambiguity and indecision, both consciously and unconsciously. And there's only a handful of them. And so, like I said, uh, I don't know if I said this on the recording or before we started recording, Jackie, this is my 319th podcast going on. I'm a one trick pony. I only talk about <laughs> one thing. I only talk about one thing and it's the words and the stories and the breath. And <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, from time to time, people are like, well, where do we, where do we do? Where do we start? And the answer is always the same, which is soft talk. It's one of the three pillars. Like I've said, this is the third time I said that. And there's a handful of soft talk keywords and it is the gateway drug to the rest of your language. And the reason that we start with soft talk, and I'm about to give you the soft talk keywords, is because there, there's, like I said, there's only a handful, and it's the easiest thing to do with when making changes or edits to your language. You just take it out. You take out these, these single words. So here's an example of a soft talk sentence. I guess I might be procrastinating. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. I guess... I might be procrastinating. Here's another soft talk sentence. I think I should spend some more time with my wife. Let's keep going. Uh, it's almost like I'm avoiding her. Or um, I, I sort of should get back in the gym. Or I'm kind of afraid of public speaking. Or I think I could possibly hire Jackie to help me turn into a fantastic world-class speaker. Those single words create a lot. They're responsible for a lot of people's indecision. And indecision is a flavor of stress. My favorite quote about indecision from Malmodius is that I prefer the fear of making the wrong decision to the terror of indecision. And what happens when people start plucking those soft talk keywords out of their language, they speak in a way more solid way. They sound more solid. They breathe better. And a bunch of other great stuff happens too. So I, I think I might be procrastinating. Think might take them out. I'm procrastinating. Now I'm not thinking about if I'm doing that or not. And most of the time people are, <laughs> yeah. if you think you're procrastinating, you know, you're procrastinating. Yeah. yeah. And, and okay. I'm procrastinating. Am I going to continue to do this or not? It's a great healthy way to force some very necessary issues with yourself. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I should spend more time with my wife. Take out the guess. I should spend more time with my wife. Cool. Okay. What would that look like? Well, she loves going to the countryside in the spring. It's January. Hey, sweetheart, what's that second uh, uh, weekend in March look like for you? Would you like 
to go there and rent a cat. Wow. Yes, I would. Things get better like that, folks. Um, um, I, I should, I should, I, I, I sort of should get back in the gym. No, you know, if you're saying that, you know, you should take out the sort of, I should get back in the gym, take out the should put in, could I could get back in the gym, take out the could put in, can I can get back in the gym, stick a time date on the end of that. I can get back in the gym next week. Great. What day, what time, when are you walking in the door? So you, t like I just said, like I said, about 40 minutes ago, you talk yourself into stuff with your words. You talk yourself out of stuff with your words. Um, or, you know, I, I think Jackie might be able to help me get on stage and deliver great talks. Take out the think because she can. Yeah. Do you know, I am, I, you saying that though, I, <laughs> I, I do the, I think I definitely put in to when I'm writing, certainly if I'm, if I'm writing a, an email, I'll put, there'll be lots of I thinks in there. And so I'll stop doing that right now. <laughs> I love your definitions Damn. of words. I mean, the, the abracadabra, the abracadabra, I think is lovely because I just assumed it was a made up word for magicians. So to, to, to actually know that it means that and to know that it means, because I wrote it down uh, with my word, I create or with my word, I, I influence. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's quite, that's quite empowering, isn't it really? Yeah. I'm a card carrying member folks. I had ah, this spe spe specifically may I have a jeweler and, and yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's wild. It changed. I remember when I, I, I went down to Ecuador, I lived down in Ecuador for a year and a half and a buddy of mine, we were out to, to lunch with a group of people and he knew what I was. This is, this is the moment when I heard the definition of, of abracadabra changed my life. Uh, and, and I've been talking about it relentlessly for the past 10 years um, uh, he goes, Hey Mark, you know what abracadabra means? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Magic. And he goes, nah, man, it's way cooler than that. He goes, it's, it's, he told me the story. It's Aramaic and the, the, the whole thing. And the hair stood up on my arms. I put my fork down, went over there and talked. And I said, tell me everything about that. And I went and looked it up and, uh, surprise, surprise. He's right. And, um, yeah. And this, it, 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 it also dove that that conversation can continue. As in spells, the definition of a spell, Webster's definition, not mine, the definition of a spell is a word or a combination of words of great influence. That's it. So um, no one will ever really love me is a combination of words that will very likely greatly influence someone. So by definition, it's a spell. And there's two sides to that coin. There are constrictive spells and there are expansive spells. Um um, great things happen when I show up. That's a combination of words that expands things in my mind, helps me. Yeah. Right. Huh. Creates better feels, unlocks my breathing and helps me move forward in the ways that I want to. Um, you can't trust anyone these days. That's a combination of words, greatly influences, you know, there's, there's a lot of great people out there. Also a combination. So it's, it's, it, that's, an, that's, I find that to be a very interesting way to think about it. Uh, I've shared that with a lot of people. Um, and I've seen a lot of people go, huh, which is also known as a cognitive shift. When so you're working with somebody and they go, hmm, or, huh, or, uh, that means something just changed. Yeah. And um, I've seen a lot of people do that when you share abracadabra with them. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, everything you've spoken about from from words to to breath to story is is everything that I do within within my coaching, too. And it's it's kind of fundamental, isn't it, in in just giving people permission to own their stories, to enjoy their stories, but to actually um, realize that there is value in their stories for them to sort of share with other people to actually validate other people's experiences and the more we kind of share these stories the 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 better the world becomes because we all you know we we kind of have this sort of shared experience so when you're t- when i have a, a lot of people say to me well i don't want to put my stuff out there i don't want to share you know you stood on you stood on the tedx stage and shared your story and it related to everything that you do now which is kind of what i do with people is I I take them and their stories and I get them onto a stage and so that they can share and benefit other people. If people are saying to me, I don't want to, I don't want to go deep. I want to share my stuff with people. It's too, I feel too vulnerable. How do you, how do you sort of speak to people then about, about uh, sharing their stories and how their stories can help? Uh, It depends um, on how, uh, how deep that person wants to go. Um, cause I only want to play at the level that, or let me say that another way. Um, if a client does not want to go into the backstory, cause there will be a backstory, uh, behind that, you know, it feels too vulnerable, which usually is going to come down to a fear of being seen. And then there going to have a, a definition about that a meaning what does it mean to be seen oh well it's just not safe so you means it's dangerous and then and there will there 90 i'm giving myself some wiggle room 99.999 percent of the time there'll be some specific memories in people's uh, uh backstory usually in their childhood that um once they get back to looking down there that road that's where these these fears of being seen as an adult come from. And half the time they specifically, when it comes to speaking and getting on stage, come those fears come from being bullied or, um, and people remember the specific events of them being bullied. Let me tell you, and guess what? They haven't written those down. The chances that they have titled that story and written it out conversationally slim to none. And then um, a, a lot of times people, which upon in upon reflection, it's it's slightly cruel, unbeknownst to them, well-intended teachers. What a weird thing to do. So someone's in the fourth grade. I'm not sure how that relates to the, the English schooling system. So someone's eight years old, a kid's nine years old, and they have to get up in front of a classroom of their peers and give a presentation about something for 10 minutes or five minutes or one minute. It's too much energy on them. And very likely they're not given any presentation skills training. They just, you've got to do a, a um, uh, you've, you've got to do a report and get up in front of your people and, say it. And a lot of times that doesn't go too well. And that sticks in people's memory. And they're like, I'm never getting up in front of people ever again. So um, uh, it'll be a lot easier to do that and for you to do that well. And for you to, um, because the goal is, and this is just my take on it, the end result, most people, most people do not want to get up on stage or give a presentation or a talk. Cool. Guess what? There's some people that do. And out of that 
percentage, it's a smaller percentage than the people that don't, that do, they're praying for a sliver of confidence. Great. Confidence is way better than insecurity. And guess what? There's a promised land after confidence. If you keep going with your training, clean up your backstory, folks, okay, and work on your breathing mechanics, then you go from comfortable to, or excuse me, confident to comfortable. Comfortable is, that's Shangri-La when you're on stage, because guess what? The, 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 the one-liner, the goal is for you to enjoy being up there. You enjoy being up there, because when someone enjoys giving a workshop or a presentation or going on a podcast, that means they're comfortable. It's impossible to enjoy yourself if you're uncomfortable, or maybe it's not impossible, but it's unlikely. And, and then if someone, when someone's enjoying themselves, like I said, giving a workshop or our level two, the back end of the second half of our level two certifications, how to give workshops. And when someone's enjoying that, they're enjoying being on stage. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. And it translates to the audience. And it's just, it's, man, what a feeling. Yeah. What a cool feeling. Being on stage, you know, acting. Yeah. Um, you, you know this. Did, of course you know this. Yeah. Did you, it's, I, I am interested actually in, in your background. I mean, before the wrestling, was, mm -hmm. was there a, a performer or a speaker, a presenter back then? That's, that's a good question. That's the first time I've ever been asked that. Um, so my stepmom, uh, she, she, we all used to go to the same church and my stepmom now, I used to play with her son and I was best friends with him back in the day. And so she, anyway, she's seen me grow up right from the very beginning. And, um, I don't remember this, but she used to tell me that in elementary school, like when I was you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I would, excuse me, I would tell stories during lunch and everybody would gather around. So let's go with yes. Yeah, I think that I think there is there, there generally is, I think, in, in my experience. Um, but I do I do absolutely agree that so many people have bad experiences of presenting in front of a class and you know teachers don't mean to be cruel sometimes but they say stuff that doesn't encourage people to to want to do it and as you say there's no training for that and actually it's you know it's something that is quite uh, quite beneficial for everybody in in their later years to be able to 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 stand up in front of an audience it's i completely agree M most of the time um, you know, giving those presentations in front of your class and, you know, when you're, you know, in, in the American school system in elementary school, which is the youngsters, the middle school, which is the middle and the high school, that usually turns out to be a net negative. You know, a couple of bad experiences, people like, I'm, like I said, I'm not going up there. No way. And they have, they, they identify themselves as, oh, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. What do you mean you're not a good speaker? Did you speak yesterday? Have you ever entertained? Have you ever told a good story at a party? Most people don't have any training. So like what you, what you, and you said this earlier, most people in they they mistake imposter syndrome with beginner syndrome. Uh, I've given somewhere around 750 professional presentations, okay. Workshops, stuff like that. I stopped counting when I got off stage at TEDx in 2017 at 500. And I started giving workshops immediately when I started coaching in 2007 because I had to. I had to get in front of people. And I was 
I was terrified and I wasn't any good, but guess what? I kept going and I got better. That's usually yeah. how it works. Right. And, um, there it's a it's a skill set folks it's like kickboxing it's like any anything that you've gotten good at i'm speaking to you audience anything that you've gotten better at you weren't that good when you started let me guess you're not as good <laughs> just say you've been doing something for 15 years and you've gotten competent at it good or better how think about how you how things went the first time you did it okay it's the same thing with speaking you do, if you do 20 presentations 20 workshops you'll be so different on that 20th one as you know, before you did that first one and yeah. you can get help, you know, it's, and it's so fun. It's so fun to get good at that. Yes. So, you know, hire people that yeah. can help you. Hire yeah. people, work with Jackie. Uh, yeah. But it's my thing is, is to, to make people excited about mm -hmm. sharing what it, their message, you know, get them to a point where they actually do enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it is very exciting. I love it. So who are the, just before we wrap up, Mark, yeah, it's yeah. been fabulous talking to you. So much interesting and insightful stuff in the, in the conversation we've had so far. So who is it that you work with? Who is it that you coach? Our certifications are niche. Um, our certifications are niche and we specialize in helping coaches build their skill set. And specifically when it comes to getting their clients, keep it super simple with the words, helping their clients get unstuck because that is most of the time, that's where you're going to meet your clients in the suck, in the stuck, in the struggle. Very rarely do clients, uh, people go hire a coach for something when the sun's out and things are going well. No, they've got a problem. They've got an issue. They need some help with it. And upon exploration, most of the time, that's an understatement. There needs to be cleanup involved. And um, so we've got a variety of different types of coaches in our coaching community, uh, a lot from the fitness industry. We've got nutrition coaches. Um, we have, uh, there's, a, there's actually a singing coach uh, from England, Fiona. She's very cool. A variety of mindset coaches uh, uh, and people that want to help their clients with their stories, with their mindset. That's what we specialize in. Um, and yeah, we've got, uh, got a cool little so community. You're, so you're, you're basically teaching other coaches what you teach. Correct. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're a certification for people that already coach or want to start coaching. Yeah. And they take these tools, plug them in uh, to what they're already doing. Um, and it works our, our system, the Enlifted method works just as well virtually as it does uh, in person. Yeah. So. And that's at enliftedme.me. Yeah. Uh, if, people, if people go there, they can, they can find out exactly what it is that you do. That's brilliant. Yes. Just to reiterate, the, when you say clean up your backstory, do you mean sort of changing uh, like, like the, the lady in the beginning in Thailand who put her hand up? It's, is it about when you say clean up, is it about looking at your story and the way that you're telling it to yourself? It's about looking at it on paper. It's first things first, make it easy on yourself uh, or make it easy on your clients. Everybody get those stories, specific events of ouch and pain and sting and woe titled and written out. So you can take yourself out of 
a chronic unconscious stress response in context to that story. Let me make this a little easier to, to, to understand. Every time you think about that thing that happened back then, you get all tight. Being tight and uh, breath trapped in the chest, and it's called amygdala hijack. So when someone uh, references a story uh, in their past, or a lot of times um, scenarios in our adult life will push those buttons way back then and unbeknownst to us. So, you know, we, we go to give a presentation at work and we feel like we're nine years old again and we're in trouble. Okay. That's some, that's some childhood stuff yeah. showing up again in our adult life. You got to go get, go through those childhood memories and write them down and then, you know, four-step them, as we say, put them through a process to take yourself out of these upregulated stress states. And, and so you unlock the breath. We're known as the language people. We might as well be known as the language and the breathing people and push comes to shove. It's about the breath. We're there to help people unlock their breath because when, when people are breathing better, they have space and clarity. Um, they make better decisions. They're way easier. Uh, it's way easier for them to stay focused on what they want to. Uh, it's way easier for them to get themselves out of gossip circles. It's way easier for them to not be scared and manipulated um, uh, by all kinds of interesting you know, institutions and people. And um, yeah, so unlock your, and, and this dovetails right back to what you do. The better yeah. people breathe, the better they present. Fact or fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a big part of what I do. And, I, and I'm glad you've kind of, uh, you've, you've validated that for me, but for oh, everybody out there that, that works with me and, and kind of cringe when I put them through all the breathing exercises, it's, it's so important. It's vital. It is vital. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for today. And and so is there anywhere else apart from enlifted.me that people can go to to find out more about what you do? This is what the website looks like. Yeah, very cool. That's us. Enlifted.me uh, and Instagram at Enlifted Coaches. Excellent. And I will put all of those links in the show notes when, when I'm done. And actually, I might write down some of the definitions of the words that you've come up with today. What's that? Uh, apart from abracadabra, atelophobia. Mm -hmm. That's the one, the fear of not being good enough. I think that's a, another one that, uh, yep. yeah, yeah. I found glossophobia not long ago, considering I'm a public speaking coach. It is the fear of public speaking. Really? Glossophobia. There you go. That's another one for you. <laughs> thank you. Excellent. Well, no, I'll let you I'll let you go and get on with your day. And thank you so much for being here, Mark England. Thank you. My pleasure, Jackie. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk and remember check out some tantalizing tales and magical moments from storytelling with puck find them where you find your favorite podcasts or head over to puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with puck podcast bye for now